Hey there! Welcome to Settle the Far. This is Corey Garvey. This is the podcast where I sit down and I speak with people who've made big jumps in their lives. That may be to a new career, moving to a new country, or finding a new community. And I want to know what it was that motivated them to make that change, what the process was like going through it, and after the fact, once they've settled, once they look back, what they feel like they've learned about themselves and about the world around them. Today I'm speaking with Lise Bienvenue. She is the founder of Souks du Monde. It's an online retailer and curator of goods from markets around the world in the Middle East and North Africa. Lise grew up in New Orleans and spent time, studied abroad in France when she was in college. She stayed there a few, few more years after college and taught English before heading back to the United States where she became a French teacher in the New York public school system. Over the last few years, Lise has been traveling the world with her husband while building out her business. And it was a great pleasure to talk to her about all of this. I think in so many ways, it um, has similarities to some of the decisions I've made, having less than full information when making big decisions. And for that reason, I, I really could empathize with the way that she was looking at things as she was going through through some of these big moves in her life. Lise is also the first person on Settle the Far that I or a friend did not know before we got started. So it was a blast to actually uh, sort of get to, to really learn about somebody that I had no clue about prior to just several weeks ago. And Lee's will always hold a special spot in this podcast because of that. Thank you to everyone who's been listening to Settle the Far. It really is your feedback and your comments and, and what I hear from you that has kept me inspired and motivated to continue to find new guests and talk to people. Uh, if you feel that you know you have guests that you want to hear on here on on the podcast or um, new points that you want to bring up to me, please don't hesitate to reach out. That's what's really keeping this thing going. You can find Sell the Far on my website, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play. Check them all out. Um, I want to hear from you, and don't be afraid to leave a review and and share with friends and family. So enough of that. Here is my conversation with Lise Bienvenue. So I'm here right now with Lisa Bienvenue. Am I pronouncing that right? Okay, Lise Bienvenue. Oh, apologies, Lise Bienvenue. And Lise, I wanted to start off with a question about sort of your your background. So you are someone who was a teacher. You have traveled uh, extensively as far as I know, or at least a bit. You are now an entrepreneur, an expat. And when you were, 20 years old, let's say, what did you see yourself doing as a career? Where did you see yourself living? And how confident were you that those things were going to stay in place for, um, for like a decent amount of time? Did you think that was going to happen for a while? Or did you expect that you would try several things out? So actually, when I started college, I was in, um, I was an international business major, and that lasted about a semester. Um, but it's funny because I've come full circle and I'm actually doing that now um, with my with my online shop. Um, but I quickly switched to French because I just enjoyed my French classes the most in college. And that kind of led to living in France after college and then um, becoming a French teacher. And so I was a French teacher in New York City for eight years. And... Um, I guess when I, when I was uh, starting off my, my teaching career, I didn't really, I saw like these old teachers in the school, schools who kind of seemed very miserable and, you know, were just sticking around for their pension or, you know, their retirement or whatever. And I, when I started teaching, I, I remember thinking to myself, I'm not going to be one of those teachers who's just sticking in here for, you know, the, the, whatever, de- deadlines for receiving your pension, things like that. Um, so I didn't, I guess I didn't see it as a long-term thing. I, I just saw it as something I was doing at that point in my life and, um, whether or not that turned out to be a forever thing was kind of up in the air to me. I guess I didn't, I didn't think one way or the other. Um, and then now, you know, um, having started Six Dumond, I'm, um, we'll see. I mean, for now it's working really great and, uh, I hope that I can continue to do this, but again, if that's not the case, then that's okay with me. Yeah. Well, you, you just brought up your, your business, Souks Demand, but before we get to that, um, yeah. 
as a as a French teacher, um, you know, my experience with the language teachers in my own past, and and I took Italian and Latin throughout high school, and mm-hmm. took nothing in college. But um, it seemed like the the foreign language teachers had a lot of experience in the locations that they were teaching, and of course, a lot of the um, curriculum is not just the language, but often the culture and discussions about, you know, the history maybe of different places. Had you been to France before and had you um, sort of spent time in the French culture or was it just school um, or, or sort of what was your what was your experience with sort of being in that world? Um, so when I was a junior in college, I went and studied abroad in a tiny no-name town that you've probably never heard of uh, in France. And I try, spent a year me. there and it's called Limoges. It's known for its porcelain, but it's like in, right in the center of France. It's not a big, it's not like a tourist attraction at all. Um, but it ended up being a really great place for me to to go because, um, you know, I was forced to speak French. It was uh, it, yeah, there was, there was not a whole, I was, there was one other American when I was there. Um, so I was surrounded by a lot of French and it really forced me to learn the language, speak, push myself. Um, and then I actually went back to France after I graduated college. I, I, there's a program for, um, actually it's for people all around the world to go to teach in French schools, to teach in the French school school system, like 15 hours a week. It's a language assistance program. Um, So I went back to France right after college and I did that for a year. Um, And I was teaching English in a high school in Paris. And I was super excited because I was not only going back to France, I I really enjoyed my year when I was there as a student, but that I was actually going to go live in Paris was just great to me. So um, after I finished that year teaching uh, in high school, towards the end of the year, when it was like time for me to sort of move on and figure out what I was going to do next, um, I decided to, well, I was, I was actually just looking online, like, what can I do in French? Is there like a master's program somewhere? And NYU has a campus in Paris and they were starting a brand new program for people who wanted to be teachers of French. Um, and so I was like, well, let me just give it a shot. I, you know, the program was for one year in Paris and one year in New York. Um, and I thought this would actually be great. Like my, I have two brothers that both live in New York, so I could spend another year in Paris and then I'll have something to do after I'm done with this. And, uh, and it'll bring me back to the States to be New York, something different. Um, and so that's kind of how I got it, got into teaching French. It wasn't necessarily like on my I kind of always had this idea that I would teach, um, but it wasn't necessarily like that I knew out of college that I was going to become a French teacher right away. So that's kind of that's kind of the path that I took to get there. And then in terms of like the you know French culture and stuff, something that I realized when I was in my own French classes in high school and in college is that um, all of the cultural aspect of of my French classes was mostly mostly French from France related. And as I was studying in France, I met a lot of people, uh, French speakers from all over the world, really. Like there's, there was tons of, um, French speakers from some African countries and from Canada and, you know, from Belgium. And I realized that that was sort of an aspect of my French classes that I didn't really learn a whole lot about. So when I was a teacher, um, I really made a point to gear my gear my classes towards, you know, looking listening to podcasts or videos from um, French speakers all over the world, not just French from France. You know, reading newspapers and, and books and fairy tales from, you know, African French French African countries or, you know, Canada. Um, so that was something. That's it's that's a good question because that was something I really tried to incorporate in my classes, like you don't have to speak Parisian French to be a French speaker. Yeah. I, I wonder if the Parisians would uh, give as much like love toward the other, the other places French is 
spoken, but my experience with French probably started more so with people outside of France. Like I, I have, um, I work with some people now that are from Northern Africa. Um, you know, I, I'd been to Montreal and skied on some mountains that are in Northern Vermont where there's tons of uh, French Canadians there. And I don't think it, you know, France seems to have this view in everybody's mind of it being um, such a, especially Americans, like such a beautiful and, and wonderful place. And it's, it's great to hear, I guess, that there's um, the, the appreciation for it because it, it is, um, you know, these other cultures that have popped up, it, it's probably a nice bit of a mix and, and fusion, I would imagine, of their cultures and the French culture that might come from France, right? Like I, if I think about uh, Northern Africa and a lot of those um those countries in, you know, Morocco and Algeria, I would imagine that they still, you know, what is that like? What is that culture like? Is it, is it still have its basis in France or are they just speaking the language? That's a good question. Um, I mean, in, in my travels and with the people that I work with in Morocco, for example, um, f French is the language that we speak. Um, I know, like, I know in Morocco, they have, there's, I might be totally wrong with this, but I think that their school system is like the French school system. And um, so they've, they've taken a lot of um, aspects of how, thing, how things are done in France and sort of adapted it in their own way. Like they take the, the they take the end of the end of high school exam, like they take in France and Morocco, the baccalaureate exam. So yeah. Yeah, I guess I'm, they've, I guess they've taken the they want. Yeah, and, and even the language, it seems like, you know, in English, we take bon appetit and small little things from the language. And my in-laws and my family in Turkey, they even take little things from from uh, from the French language. I, I, I think the most, um, I guess, versatile word in any language is pardon, because everybody seems to know. And if you have to get somewhere, you know, it's, it's the best way to get people out of your way. But... So you were teaching in in New York, you said, after you finished school and you were, you were a French teacher, and then you ended up uh, leaving to go travel. And how did how did that come about? Did you um, and, and where did you travel to? Um, so my husband is Belgian and um, one of the perks of being a teacher is that you get the summers off. Um, so my husband also works from home. Um, and so that enabled us to go travel in the summers. And, uh, first we kind of started by traveling a lot in Europe. Like we would fly to, to Brussels, pick up, uh, the extra car that was at his parents' house. And we, like one summer we drove to Southern Spain we spent the summer down there. Another summer we drove to Sicily. That was an epic wow. journey, but... <laughs> Um, so we spent the summer in Sicily one year, we drove to Croatia another summer. Um, and then, so that was kind of always our sort of, uh, routine in the summer. We would like go somewhere and just spend, you know, six, six, seven weeks there, there. Um, and then we started becoming a little bit more adventurous and we went to Africa one summer, um, and did like a whole two month long trip, like from North to South Africa. That was pretty amazing. And another summer we went to Southeast Asia and, you know, just spent the summer there. So that was kind of, all, that's kind of always been our, our thing is to like go somewhere in the summer and travel. Uh, um, and the great thing about living in New York is that, you know, it's such a hub for, you can go basically anywhere. But the other thing about living in New York is you can go anywhere, but it takes forever to get there. Yeah. Like, even if you want to go, you know, a flight to Europe is six, seven hours, like a flight to, I don't know, uh, South America is like 10 hours or a yeah. flight to California is like four or five hours. So I think, um, after, after doing that for a number of years, nine years to be exact in New York, um, we just started thinking like, where, where could we be? That would be like a little bit more convenient for us to travel. Like, so we don't always have to take these giant six week long trips. Like we can go somewhere for a long weekend or for like a week at a time or, 
you know, be a little bit more flexible. And so we, we sort of started thinking about that more and more and the winters in New York started getting longer and longer. And, uh, we just decided, we, we decided to, you know, move, move away from New York and we ended up in Europe and, um, it's super convenient to travel in Europe, you know, like flights are, flights are very, it's very fast to get anywhere. It's much cheaper. You can go travel by train. Um, it's just so much more convenient. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of how we ended up kind of how we, well, I mean, short, long story short, that's kind of how we ended up, uh, in Europe for now. Did, did your husband now, did he, he had the flexibility to take, I, mean, I imagine he had to take time off even if he was working from home, right? So if you were going to travel to uh, Croatia or drive down to Sicily or something like that, um, did, I guess what I'm wondering is, did it matter that he was working from home? It seems like something that um, that anyone could kind of do. My sister's a teacher and <laughs> I wonder if her and her husband could, could do something similar, but you know, he, her husband would have to take some time off. Well, so he, he actually works for himself. So that makes it easy. He's he's his own boss. Um, and just being just everywhere we travel, we have to have internet. He has to be connected. Um, he gets phone call from phone calls from clients and you know, he's, he's always connected. So, yeah. Did you take, take, taking time off is not, wasn't, it wasn't a deal. Wasn't a deal for him. So when you were deciding to leave and I guess go to Europe, um, were you planning to be a teacher? No. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, eight years, eight years teaching in New York City public schools was at that point, that was, that was enough for me. I needed a break. I needed to change. Um, and I wanted to find something that was just totally different. I mean, I, I, I enjoyed the time that I was teaching. You know, I loved my students. I, um, I loved the challenge, but after eight years, I, I definitely needed a break. So I was, I was happy at that point to stop teaching. Yeah. And I, I want to get into your business, uh, Souks Dumont. Am I saying that right? Yep. Cool. And it seems like you, so maybe you can give a little introduction. What, what do you do? What does Souks Dumont do? And why would I, why would I use your, uh, why would I go to the website? So as I said, you know, our summers were, were spent traveling and um, something I enjoy doing when I'm traveling is to go visit the local markets and to like connect with the artisans and some of these sort of off the beaten paths that we've gone to. And um, I would always bring back something from where we were traveling. Like when we were in Africa, we went, we were in um, West Africa and Senegal and there were these amazing handwoven baskets. And I like bought a whole bunch of them and brought them back uh, to New York or like, um, rugs from Turkey, rugs from Morocco. I would like bring those back text, uh, same thing, textiles and stuff like that. I would bring those back to New York. And when friends would come, friends and family would come and visit, they, you know, say, Oh, this amazing basket or this amazing rug. Like, where'd you get it? Where can I find it? Where I want to buy it. I want to, you know, get something like that for my apartment. And it people would always kind of laugh because I'd be like, Oh, I got that in like, you know, in Dakar or that came from like Cappadocia, Turkey. And obviously like, you know, people in New York city don't necessarily fly to Dakar to grab a a basket and use it to decorate their home. So, um, when we decided to leave New York and I was trying, I was, you know, just sort of brainstorming on what I would do next this idea just kept coming back to me and um, we knew that we weren't going to find a home base right away after we left New York. Our idea was to kind of travel around for a little while. And um, so as we did that, I started sort of reaching out to people that I'd met along our travels and connecting with artisans, connecting with weavers, connecting with vendors. And I realized like I could do this and, you know, make it, make a business out of it. So, um, the, the summer after I quit teaching, you know, New York, I guess it's the same all over the U S but in New York city, as a teacher, you're paid over 12 months of the, of the year. So you're paid the 10 months that you work over 12 months of the year. 
So I gave myself a deadline, like I was going to learn how to set up a website and like learn a little bit about online marketing and, you know, connect with these vendors and like figure out how that would all, what that would look like. I gave myself the summer to sort of learn how to do that. And that's what I did. And I started 60 Mon in October after we had stopped or after we had left uh, New York. Okay. I have, I have a lot of questions here, mostly because I'm both somebody who has started my own projects and companies, as well as someone who loves to travel and like buy things while I'm traveling. First, you said that when you go to, when you do these travels, you know, going to the market, seeing local artisans, and these are people that you seem to have gotten contact information from, or at least been able to reach out to, um, do you have a routine when you're in a new city about how to find the right markets that you want to go to and the way that you work yourself through the market? Because it can be very intimidating. I've been, my wife is from Turkey. I mean, the Grand Bazaar is obviously like the Mecca kind of of this sort of thing, but like, how, how do you, how do you go about it? That's a good question. Um, so sometimes it works where I can just walk through a market and start talking to the vendors and sort of ask them where their products come from and learn that way and sort of connect with them that way. But a lot of, a lot of times I've, um, met the, the artisans and the vendors that I work with through somebody who's already in that country that I know, like, um, in Morocco, we got, I got connected with some of the people that I work with through a friend of ours who lives in Morocco and his dad is a furniture builder. And, um, he knows, you know, all of these people who are connected with weavers in the mountains (laughs) in, in Morocco. So, yeah. So some, sometimes it works that way where I can, you know, go to, I I do have some people that I work with that I've, I've met at like some of the markets, markets that I've traveled to, but, um, definitely having a, having a connection, having somebody to sort of break the ice and, introduce me has been helpful as well. I bet. And yeah, that, that's, that's so cool. I, I, anytime I travel, um, especially with my, with my parents, my dad just loves going to markets. I, I feel like it's the best place to be. But one of the things that I would imagine kind of holds us back, uh, at least me and my family is the language barrier. Do you, have you had more success in French speaking places and, um, yeah, is there a difference? Do you have any thoughts on like where where it is that these markets or, or that you seem to find better places to buy things and, and source things from? Um, that's a good question. I guess the part of it is language. I mean, the people that I work with in Morocco, we speak we speak French. Um, same thing with the connections that I made in Senegal. Um, but it's not always the language. I mean, <laughs> another part of it is like who I can, what countries I can import from. Okay. Like Morocco has a, has a law with the United States or I guess some sort of deal with the United States where we can import textiles from Morocco without taxes. So okay. it, it, that's also a huge part of it, you know? Cool. So you are living now in Europe and um, what, over that time since you've been settled down, how, how long have you been there and not been on sort of a, a, a continuous travel if you are settled down right now? We, I don't know if we would, I would say that we're settled down. We've been spending more time in Paris and I've been, um, I've got a couple of my big suitcases in Paris right now. Um, but we're still traveling. Well, we were still traveling up until the beginning of March. Um, so yeah, I guess our finding our home, we're still sort of looking for our home base, what that's going to be. Um, sure. But we've been, yeah, we've been traveling for about almost two years now. Wow. Yeah. And what is the, what is the biggest, um, maybe what's the biggest thing that you miss about a more stable I guess, situation in New York and maybe just being in America in general? I definitely miss just having my things like 
like for example, in a kitchen where I can just cook with the things that I know I have in, in the kitchen. Yeah. Um, that, that I really miss. Um, and in the United States, it's a funny thing, but I, I miss just like customer service and like the simplicity of doing things, even though New York is, you know, this grind and life can be really difficult in New York. Um, things just seem so much simpler in the United States, you know, like something as simple as having a, having something delivered to you, which we, we maybe take for granted, um, in New York, having your groceries delivered to you when you're, when you know you're going to have like a really long week, you want to have time to go to the grocery store or, uh, even just like getting paperwork done. It seems like such a headache in New York, but compared to the rest of the I want to say with the rest of the world, I don't know if that's the case, but Western Europe for sure. Like it's, it's just such such a bigger headache over there than it is in in the States. So I miss just like the simplicity of doing things and uh, yeah, customer service, service, just people like wanting to help you and wanting to figure things out with you rather than getting a no right away, which is kind of the case in France at least. Yeah. Yeah. I can empathize. I've, had my own frustrations a lot of times and even things like food. I, I, the, the, the ease with which you can get like a to go meal in the United States and you can get, you know, pretty decent food. Whereas my experience going to France for work, I, there was one place that I would go to really frequently and otherwise we would have to sit down and have, have a meal. And maybe that wasn't always what I wanted, but that was sort of the, that was the option that was like in front of me. So there wasn't too much I could do. Um, but aside right. from the, maybe the in things, France, you can yeah, in, go on. No, I was going to say in France, you can maybe like pick up a sandwich from the bakery, from the local bakery. But yeah, in terms of just like grabbing a quick meal, it seems to be, they seem to not have figured out how to do that yet. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's almost a spite toward that idea because it, it almost symbolizes, this is totally my opinion, but it like symbolizes like a crack in the, like, uh, the social, like, you know, relevance of food and eating and that you ought to be breaking bread and really sitting down and being patient. And, um, you know, I think most Americans, at least me would say that that's a, a unfortunate way to look at it because it hinders you from having more options, but then again, I don't think the French would um, would back down. I think like there's a there's a fair point that every time you do one of these things, whether it's like a certain form of delivery or quicker food or something like that, it it changes people's expectations and it changes like how people look at food and especially things like kids. I mean, kids grow up um, sort of with these expectations, and if it's like okay, I can get food really easily, then they don't really maybe have the patience to go and sit down at a restaurant and things like that because they're used to being able to get things quickly. And I say kids and it's, it's really like anybody, I mean, at this point, but. There is something to be said about the fact that, you know, in, in, um, in a country like France, they take time to sit down and have a meal or they like take time out of their day to sit down and have a coffee. Um, it's, it, I think it, it shows a lot of our cultural differences or as in America, you can just grab your coffee to go and drink it on the, drink it on the run on the way to work or whatever. Um, and they don't really do that in Europe, which there's something to be said about that. Absolutely. Did you have that um, perspective when you were in New York and had spent time living in France for a little bit? Yeah. And then I was reminded of it again when, when we, after, after leaving New York and coming back to Europe, you know, long-term, I just realized like walking around during lunchtime and there's men and women in business suits and business attire, like sitting down for lunch with, you know, a bottle of wine and stuff. It's just, it seems like a, a really civilized way to live compared to the way we do it in New York. And it was, yeah. that was, that was like a very glaring, um, difference when I, when I came back, when I went back to Europe. Yeah, I, I feel the same. And, and I've gotten a lot of, um, I think I had a hard time in certain points in America with 
small things like wanting to take time out for a doctor's appointment or, um, you know, even just having needing some time for my own space. If it's a morning that I'm like moving slow or something's going on with my family, I didn't, I never felt as comfortable, um, maybe taking that time as, as now when I think some people that are, uh, European give me a lot of, um, you know, they're really like paying attention to me as a person rather than always as a worker. I don't want to like hate on the, the entire American way of it. Cause I, you know, at my core, I'm like, I really think that a lot of the success that America's had is based on people's, you know, uh, willpower and like pushing themselves and being gritty and things like that. Um, but it is, it is pretty clear when you sort of spend time in these different places and you actually dive in, I think like, you know, for you, it sounds like you've been able to be, you know, in these places in Europe, um, in France and not, you know, the American tourist who's just kind of looking at what's happening and being like, Oh, this is so annoying. Why can't I get a paper cup for my coffee? But instead you know, actually experiencing it. Right. Definitely. Definitely have to go in with a with an open mind and sort of put your expectations of getting a full glass with ice or, you know, like you said, your coffee cup to go. <laughs> kind of put that to the side. Yeah. Um, so a little bit more about your uh, business. I want to know, are there like, what is your what is your vision for it? So right now, looking at the site, you know, you have different pieces that you're getting from uh various vendors around the world. And it seems pretty focused on, if I'm right, kind of like, um, I don't know, Middle Eastern uh, pieces or something. But like, how do you how do you foresee um, maybe the business growing? And are you surprised that this isn't easier to find already? Because it seems like, you know, when I travel, I love, I love shopping when I travel, it's almost like, if I'm going to shop at home, it's for t-shirts and, and simple pieces of clothing. But while I'm traveling, that's when, yeah. you know, I want to get things that I'm going to remember. Um, so w- what do you see as the future of the business or what do you want it to become? And are you surprised that, that something, um, that this hasn't been a bigger sort of market already? So I'm going to, I'll start by answering that question with where, how the business has already changed since I started sure. it. Um, so my my idea in the beginning was, you know, having items from all of these countries where we're visiting, um, and putting them on my online boutique, and and you know having this just huge variety of things. And once I started my business, I uh, was selling the most things that the thing that I was selling the most was like my rugs. So I kind of adapted my business to focus more to have more. A bigger collection of rugs and um, and textiles. So that's how it's kind of shifted from when I started. Like I, I originally thought I was going to have all of these, you know, ceramics and jewelry and um, even you know bags and purses and things like that. But that's sort of how it's it's shifted on its own. Just because that's that's what people have been buying the most. That's what people are the most interested in. So. Um, um, but I still have this idea that I want to I want to have um, products from more countries and um, and so I'm I'm hoping to expand on uh, just the variety of things that I have and like the countries that I work with. But as I was saying earlier, it sort of depends on the import taxes and and things like that. So um, it's a matter of finding the right countries that where I can ship ship things to the United States that have good. Uh, connections with the U.S. in terms of like the, the import taxes and stuff like that, um, and yeah, the kinds of things that people are interested in, in buying. Uh, the other thing I'm I'm working on is having more stories about like where my products come from because for me that's like that's really a huge part of um, the types of things that that I have in my shop and also the connections that I'm making with the people um, in these places. So I'd like to once you know this virus is is uh, eradicated and we're you know able to travel again um i'm hoping to go back to the to to my vendors and my artisans and have them tell more about their stories and and um 
you know, share that with the people, share that with my clients and share that with people that are coming to visit my, my, my boutique. Are you, who is the, the, I guess the typical type of customer? Is it, um, is it a certain person that wants to feel like they've kind of gone overseas or has a connection to that? Or is it kind of a wide array of different types of people? Uh, so yeah, it's been a wide array of people. I mean, I've worked with a, a number of interior designers who just want to, f- you know, want to source products from to, to sort of um, have a more eclectic look in, in the places they're styling. So I've been working with interior designers, but then just the normal cu- normal customers might be, yeah, like somebody who um, has traveled and has seen some some of these things, but didn't know how to get it back to the U.S. Sure. or um, people who want to travel more and want to have, you know, um, want to have more, uh, objects in their home that are not, you know, Amazon and Target and Walmart. Um, and then some, a lot of people that I work with are artists themselves and just really appreciate handmade products and, um, appreciate the art that comes behind it and the traditions that come behind it and the history that comes behind it. Um, so yeah, it's real. it's been a, a wide array of, of people, which is cool. Yeah, that is cool. I think it, it, I would imagine that's been a learning experience, right? Like, did you expect interior designers to be, um, as interested? I guess you, you didn't really expect that the rugs were going to take off as the number one thing. So, um, yeah, I, I, I can imagine it's been a huge learning experience, right? You probably have been introduced yeah, to sure. vendors and things. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the idea of working with interior designers didn't even cross my mind in the beginning. Um, but it makes sense. I mean, they're they're the ones that are putting things in people's homes, you know? Like, it makes sense that they that they need places to source, source them from. And um, it's good to know also that, you know, these big brands only, only go so far that people still are looking for like these unique one of a kind things that are not factory made and, you know, will last longer and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. I, I I think the more that the, the big box kind of stuff permeates throughout our lives, the more these pieces are like significant in someone's home and you actually seek it out even more because it's even gotten, you know, the Ikea generation and all the, the things that we have in our homes that are from, um, they just look like they were made with a 500,000 other version of the exact same version. Um, it really does feel good to have a piece that you can hold on to for a while. So. I, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I guess the idea that the, the other thing that I've realized, and I'm really glad that pe- people that I've worked with realize this as well is like, you know, a rug is a, a big investment. Uh, it can be a big investment, but like, like you said, it's like maybe you have an Ikea living room or bedroom or whatever. And like, but having this, this rug, this one of a kind piece that's handmade, it's going to, it's going to last forever. And like, it's a really, it could be a really, really big um, important piece in your home, you know? Totally. And it brings, you know, a, a, that's not to say you can't like get joy out of, you know, standard ikea rug but it really brings a um i think especially the stories like hearing about that so i was recently or late last year we were in australia and we found some markets where there was aboriginal um pieces whether that was art or we bought some pottery that has really nice paintings on it and stuff and we were given a card that had a story and the aboriginal culture I can compare it um, best with my own experience with the Native American culture and that there's um, sort of like stories and, and um, I guess fables, you would say, that, that sort of tie in different animals and, and seasons and things like that. And we bought this piece from, and I, I can like remember the guy at the market and it's sort of, you know, we I think we thought we would use it to put use tea bags on or something like that but it's like too nice that like we don't really want to make it dirty or stain it or anything but it has this card along with it that tells a story about the purpose of it and people have come in and they look at it and they're like oh this is cool i want to you know 
let me read through this and it gives it, it, it just has so much more character than um than i've gotten from you know i never I, I try to buy as little as possible but it's really like having that story around it and understanding where it comes from do the do the what has your experience been like with the vendors and with the locations um how are they how do they view the market and like you know when i go to a market in turkey um i wonder like do they expect to sell things overseas do they or, or how much do they expect that and and how have they embraced your business it's funny you ask that because um it's honestly with the, the vendors that I work with, the artisans that I work with, they've been so grateful and so happy to work, you know, with, with me an American, um, because it really opens their, opens their market up completely. Like a lot of the people that I work with, they have their, their little stand or their, their little market and like the local, um, in the local market. But, They'll only sell if they have tourists that are coming by and shopping at these places. So it's very seasonal and it also depends on like the security of the country and things like that. But um, I've just found that the, that they're so grateful to, to work with me and they're so happy that this is like a whole, this really opens their market um, up completely to like a whole nother clientele and, um, and another, another avenue of selling their products. So that's been real. that's actually been really cool to see. Yeah, that is. And th this is obviously, this isn't like, um, helpful for, you can choose to answer if you want, but is there a fear that it's going to become so easy to get these types of pieces that they'll sort of lose their value? And like, how do you think about that? That's like a good question. Um, I don't know. I mean, to me, part of, part of it is, you know, running my business and having my, my shop and stuff like that. But the other part is, of it is the human experience. And, and um, I'm just thinking of like the people that I work with in Turkey. We went and, we went and met with them earlier this year in January. Um, and any, every, every single piece that they sell is like super important to them, you know? So whether it's me or somebody in another part of the world selling their rugs or them selling their rugs at their local market, like every single piece is so important that they sell. Um, so I don't, I guess I don't really think about that because it seems like the human experience and like um, their livelihood as well is, is, is kind of more important. Yeah. I think, I think even the question sort of implies that having a rare piece is almost, or something difficult to get, right? Like if I have a, a rug from Turkey and people come into my home and ask where I got it, that it's almost a better piece if other people can't get it. But that's probably the wrong way to look at it. I think if we all had access to all these things, it would be better, right? Yeah, sure. Um, but it's, it's, it's funny, though, because like I, I, I work with some um, designers and, you know, the, their clients will come in and say, like, I want this. I want, my, I want my living room to look like this. And I want, like, this rug and I want this couch. And I want these pillows. And something like, something like a Turkish rug or a Moroccan rug. They're one of a kind pieces. It might be 50, 60, 70 year, years old. Um, it's impossible to replicate. You know, it's like a, a work of art. You can't, you can't just like replicate it like a, like you can in a factory. Yeah. It's people actually weaving every single little piece onto the rug. Um, and I think it's, I think for Americans, like we 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 have something that we want, and it's hard to sort of let that go. Um, and I kind of like that idea with these, with, with the pieces that I sell, that it's just like these one of a kind things that they're, they're so handmade, that they're so unique. Um, I like the, I, I like the idea that we can't all have the same thing that, you know, you can have something that looks similar, it might, it's, but it's not going to be the exact same. Um, and that's okay. Cause that's what art is. Yeah. I've also found that we, we got a Turkish rug recently and the imperfections are almost frustrating maybe at first when when like looking to purchase it, but then they become sort of the, the why you enjoy it, right? And, and that uniqueness. Um, yeah, it, it, I really like, even the, the, I was talking about something I bought, uh, this little thing I bought in Australia, it kind of wobbles a little bit and it's like not ideal, mm. but it becomes, it adds to the character, right? And it, it brings it back to the fact that somebody actually did 
use their hands to put it together. And it's imperfect as like people and like creating things with your hands kind of is, right? Absolutely, yeah. Um, great. So we're kind of, I don't want to take too much of your time. Just, I'm wondering, like for people who may be listening, and I think the idea of, and me included, you know, working on my own, being disconnected from, um, from the man and like, <laughs> whether that's teaching or whatever it is, is a really desirable state. Um, how much do you think, you know, your mindset toward being able to do that and maybe your husband being the first uh, to kind of show you that that could be the way or whatever it is that inspired you. Um, how much do you think your mindset led to you starting the business versus you starting the business? And then obviously I just heard the story, but like you starting the business or having an idea for the business and then realizing it was possible. Like, were you chasing one side or the other or did things just kind of all come together? Yeah, honestly, I don't think I would have realized that it was possible if my husband didn't have his own thing and, and work from home and have been doing that for a while now. Um, so I think that was sort of what, what sh he was the one that showed me the light. Um, but yeah, and in, in terms of, you know, stopping teaching and, and working on this, it just all kind of fell into place. Like, you know, we had been working for a period of time where we had saved money and it wasn't like we were, you know, just starting out after college and stuff like that. So we sort of had a little bit more flexibility and the fact that he's Belgian made it easier for me to get my residency in Belgium and, and for us to actually be able to live in, in Europe, you know, that that's, I know that's a, like a big headache for a lot of Americans who want to try and, and move away from the States. It's like, how do you actually do that? What does that actually look like? Um, so I guess that it's sort of all lined up. Um, in that kind of way. Um, but yeah, I don't think I would have, I don't know if I would have had the idea to do this if not, if not for him. Yeah. And, and did you, so you kind of started the business and, uh, ended up it, you know, doing this more aggressively and really iterating on it and building it out. Um, were you planning to like sort of test it out and then figure out like work on the side or was it like, no, I'm, I'm, I got to go all in on this or it's not going to work. Did you have like a deadline for yourself or anything? I decided just to go all in on it. Um, I actually, one of my brothers who lives in New York is an artist and um, he's a, he's a painter and he really, like he really struggled for a good 10 years after fin finishing art school. Like, but he would go into a studio every day after work. Like he really made a point to, uh, to spend as much time as he could on his art to really try and really try and make it work. And then after a period of time, he just like quit work and, um, and just focused all of his time and energy on his art and like kind of started to break through and like he's, he's successful now. Um, and he, he always, he always sort of put this idea in my head that if there's something that you want to do, whatever, whatever it is like for work, for play, for pleasure, whatever it is, like if there's something you want to do, you have to just like put the time and energy in and and, and make it happen. And I guess I I that was sort of in, that was sort of in my mind once I started once I started this it was like I'm gonna just I'm gonna just not set myself any deadlines. I'm just gonna see you know I'm gonna put my energy into it. I'm gonna do the best I can. I'm learn everything I can. And uh, I didn't really even think like I would give myself a deadline. I just. I just really focused on creating it and starting it. And, and that's what I did. That's great. I, it's super inspirational. And I, I, I've played around with different projects and things. And I think the consistency of putting the work in and maybe not having a, a job at the time and, and traveling and being in a position where you could put the time and the energy in is the best way to go about it. But I think also, um, yeah, just that consistency and, and, and valuing the work that you're putting in rather than maybe the outcome because it can be um, it can be tough at first, right? Starting anything and not having the maybe the feedback you want, but it sounds like you were able to yeah. sort of listen a little bit to the customer, understand what they wanted, and then 
be flexible, but still like judge yourself based on what you input rather than what you're getting out of it. Right. Totally. And I guess I would say also, I don't know, maybe I would have a different perspective of if this didn't take, take off the way that it has. Um, I guess it's easier to look back and say like, Oh, I put everything, put everything in and I had no deadlines, but I mean, maybe, maybe it would have been differently different if, uh, if it didn't work from the get go. Sure. But I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure that, um, everybody needs luck, right. To get through any, anything and to be successful in anything like you need, you need to have some, some bit of maybe not luck, but like you can try a lot of things and there's a lot of ideas that maybe are too early or, um, aren't timed correctly, or you're not in exactly the right market, or you don't have that connection, but nothing is going to happen. You're not even going to learn whether something works or not if you don't actually put that effort in and give it a shot and, and really go for it. And um, yeah, I mean, that's that's sort of the table stakes of getting any of it done. So I think you're being probably accurate, but modest at the same time, because... <laughs> Well, cool. I, um, thank you so much for joining me. I, you know, as I mentioned to you before the podcast, uh, you're the, the first guest who isn't, I guess, in my own circle or a friend of a friend. So it's really a pleasure to have you on and hear about your experience and going through all of this. And I think hopefully, you know, I think for the listeners, it'll be an inspiration, not only to maybe learn French, but to think about what kind of business they could start, what kind of, um, stuff they they want to be able to do do you do you have any last words that you want to say maybe before this is all before this is done yeah i mean i guess um i would just encourage somebody uh, encourage people that if if you have an idea you know if you want to if whether it might be a side hustle or turn into something you know that you do full time if you have an idea um uh, do a little bit of research you know talk to people, see, see what the interest is, but, but go for it. Um, you know, it's, you might be surprised with, uh, you might be surprised with the reception that you get. You might be surprised with what you yourself can do. And, um, and you never know if you don't try. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, uh, I'm going to mess up the pronunciation here. Lise? Lise. Lise, apologies. Lise, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure <laughs> chatting and yeah, good luck with everything. Thanks so much, Corey. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Settle the Far. All that rad funky music you're hearing comes from Peggy Bunker and the Bunkmates. New idea here, challenge of the week. This week, try to introduce yourself to somebody that you've never met before. It might be the barista at the coffee shop, the girl at the flower shop, or that person bagging your groceries. Say hello. Let them know your name. Until next time, stay inspired, people.